Hello, my friend. Welcome to the Business Leadership Today podcast. I'm your host, Matt Tenney. As an active CEO, my goal is to build and sustain world-class organizations that make a positive impact on the lives of employees and on the global community. And I have a lot of questions about how we can continuously get better and achieve our goals. And so through this podcast, we reach out to top thought leaders and get answers to those questions. And we give you the opportunity to listen to their answers too. This episode is part of a series we're doing on how to build a high performance culture that doesn't burn people out. My guest today is David Kronfeld. David has been a management consultant with Booz Allen, a corporate executive, and is the founder and chairman of JK&B Capital, a leading venture capital firm. His extensive top management experience and role serving on boards of directors means he's been actively involved with the highest priority challenges facing dozens of companies. And David has over 35 years of experience investing in the telecommunications and software industry and brings unique insights and advice regarding how to create a high performance culture that's sustainable. It's not going to burn people out. David is also the author of the recently released Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Remarkable. I am very, very excited to hear David's thoughts today, principally because of his combined experiences investing in and guiding so many organizations and their leaders and employees. David, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for inviting me as a guest on your show. Oh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, so in a moment, David, I'm going to ask you to share your thoughts on the six most important things a leader needs to do to create a high performance culture that's sustainable. It's not, it's not going to burn people out. But before we explore those kind of big six ideas, you know, your, your book, Remarkable, is all about insightfulness, about having unique ways of approaching problems. And, you know, at a high level, I think your approach to high performance culture is just like that. It's, it's insightful. It's, uh, it's, it's different from what's commonly being shared widely today. So could you kind of introduce us to this conversation with, um, you know, just a little bit more, could you tell me about why your approach is different? What makes it different, um, in terms of approaching high performance culture? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, so just a little bit of a perspective to understand why my approach is different and why people refer to it as being insightful, kind of a common word that I heard over my career. When I came to this country, I came as an immigrant. I barely spoke the language. Uh, I came to school, uh, very thick accent. My culture was a little different. So I kind of was a little pushy in terms of interpersonal skills. So I was pretty not well equipped on the interpersonal skill side. So I would suspect that at best, I would have had a very average career uh, because of those obstacles. Mm. So I, I realized that, that those obstacles are not going to allow me to get too far unless I really understood how can I change myself to fit better into the American culture, corporate culture, and how to do better and perform better. Uh, but to do that, I had to really start to understand things that were foreign to me. So I started observing the work environment. And through this observation, it was almost self-survival for me, because if I, if I didn't really understand how things really work, uh, not just for me, what were my obstacles, what were the things that I was doing poorly or the things that I was doing well, but rather I had to first understand what does it take for any employee to do well? 
What does it take for any employee to be observed and to be thought of highly? What does mm. it take for any employee to progress his career? And the reverse, what stands as an obstacle in terms of every employee? So I started observing a completely different level, trying to understand exactly those points. Once I understood really the way things truly work, I call it what happens in terms of someone's career where the rubber meets the road really what happens, right? People get promoted, right? People don't get promoted. And having had the opportunity to work at all different management levels and consult at the very highest management levels, I got to understand aspects of corporate environment that I think gave me a completely different perspective, which people will refer to it as insightful. But I think it's different than the common wise person would look at things. Uh, and, and so that was the, the genesis of why uh, I wrote the book. It is to give insightful observations, all the observations that I learned over my career that helped me progress my career, give it to other employees that can understand what it is that really will accelerate their career. Mm. So with that perspective in mind, what, what, what happens is the book provides, deals with everything that that uh, deals with the career progression all the way from the beginning all the way from writing a resume to getting a good interview the interviewing process to doing well in a corporate environment to being observed in a corporate environment to not making mistakes in corporate environment but more importantly to be a top performer in a corporate environment and if you'll allow me i'll take a minute or two just to explain that concept because i think that is one of the observations that i will bring forward regarding how do you create a high performance culture sure yeah what does it mean what does it mean to be a top performer how do you be a top performer i'd love to hear that so so let me play a little bit of a role here and suggest the following if one were to go to to a book and seek advice as to how to succeed in in american corporate business world or if one were to go to a very experienced executive or person and ask him or her, the following question, please give me advice. What should I do or what should I not do to become successful? Here is an insightful observation. Most advice that you get and most of what the books will tell you would be based on the following observation. One cannot succeed if one fails i.e. if you want to succeed, don't fail, meaning don't do the kind of things that will make you fail. Mm. And I call that advice very good advice, but I refer to that advice as a first level advice, and I refer to it as a fatal flaw advice, meaning if you don't follow this advice, you will never succeed because you would fail. Right. So you're not, you're never even going to kind of get off the ground in terms of being. Successful. That's exactly right. But here is an interesting observation. Here is a very insightful observation. Assuming that you took all that advice and you are now at the next stage and you didn't fail, from that point on throughout your entire career, you will be competing with other people for any single position, for any single promotion. All those people that you will be competing with have read the same book, have heard the same advice, have followed the same advice of not fail, 
not failing. And indeed, they haven't failed because they are now where you are at. So the real question is, how do you compete against them? How do you compete and become more successful than those successful people? Mm. I call that, how do you become a top performer? Meaning, I'll give you the kind of advice that will make you a top performer, meaning that you will compete successfully against the most successful people. Right. With that kind of of a twist, which I call the insightfulness, is when I'm talking about, and you refer to the the high-performance culture, to me, the high-performance culture starts not with what a corporation does, not with what they're trying to accomplish by setting goals of becoming high-accomplished, high-performance environment. I mean, yeah, those those do play a role. But at the bottom line, you will never get a high-performance culture and a high-performance organization if you don't have high-performance employees to begin with. Mm. So people who so, are predisposed to really, yeah, really so being high-performance. If, if you hire people that cannot measure up to a high-performance uh, uh, competency, then I don't care what the other things the organization will do to try and create an environment by which you can perform at a high performance, high competence level, it's not going to happen because the employee is just not going to get there. And I'm not necessarily talking about because of mental ability or because of, of, of brain power. I'm talking about many other reasons. Could be just motivation, could be personality, uh, could be different behavioral traits that just will not allow the team to get there. So from my perspective is, if if one wants a high performance uh, uh, environment, one needs to start with the right employees. So a simple advice would be basically two things. Make sure you hire the right employees who are capable of becoming high performers, and then give them the environment to become high performers performance, so it encourages high performance. And and last but not least, and this is where I feel most corporations pay lip service to it, and it should be a much higher priority if a corporation wants the high performance to to actually mature and become reality. Train the people. Mm. Train them, teach them, get them to become high performance individuals. So it sounds to me like the the real trick is finding who's got the most potential to be high performer um, in a short period of time, right? Because there's a, anyone could be a high performer eventually, right? If they get trained for 20 years, uh, maybe they can overcome their tendencies to be low performers and become high performer. But by then, you know, you've, you've probably missed your window as, as an organization to be a high performance organization. So you want to find people who are, who are predisposed to become high performers in a relatively short amount of time, you know, maybe one year, three years, something like that, where you know these people can be A players, you know, top 1% in a matter of years, if, like you said, you give them the right training in the right environment. Is that is that right? Am I on the right track here? No, that's correct. It's actually a very good, very, very insightful observation. Um, so there are little nuance to that. And if, I, if you'll allow me, I'll kind of point out to that. Sure. So there are two parts to your uh, question in my mind. Uh, the first part is if uh, the hiring time. 
So if, if, if you want to ensure that you have high performance, your best screen is at hiring time. And, right. and the human resource people or the people who actually screen for those individuals and during the interviewing process, uh, those people should have enough experience to be able to tell whether a person is potentially of a high performance or not, whether he has an opportunity to progress or not. Uh, and there are many different ways by which one arrives at that judgment. But, but it starts with screening out the people that you really don't believe could be high performing people. Right. Hey, uh, but, uh, David, before you go on to the second one, sure. I've got a question for you. Do you have, I know that you've mentioned that there are, there are several ways uh, to determine that, right? Do you have, is there one really good kind of behavioral interview question that you think um, somebody could walk away with right now that could help them? It, not a guarantee that they're going to get a high performer, but that can, is a really good screening question for that. Is there one that comes to mind for you? Uh, yes, there are a couple of them, uh, and I'm sure every human resource person or every person who has interviewed uh, uh, quite a bit will, will, will agree with it. Uh, clearly, the first one is to be high performance, you need a kind of a brain power that allows you to get there. And to me, brain power is not IQ. To me, brain power is just how one thinks when one mm. looks at business problems, business situations, and the like. Does he dissect business situation properly? Does he think about, is he a shallow thinker with a deeper thinker? Is he a top of the wave uh, thinker or whether he's some, some, somebody that really analyzes situation? You can get it in a thousand ways. You can get it from just having a simple conversation and having the person dissect something for you, or you can have a case study. I mean, a lot of people mm. use case studies to try and do that. So the first thing is just trying to understand whether the person uses the brain in a way that allows them to dissect situations, analyze situation, take a lot of data into consideration, have good perspective, offer alternatives and offer good solutions in your mind. Mm. And, and, you know, a good experienced interviewer can get that out of a case study or can get, I can talk to you about the weather and ask a couple of questions about why do you think so? And look <laughs> yeah. at your answer to tell you whether I think you're a deep thinker and the like. Uh, so that's one way. The other way is uh, the softer way. It's not the brain power, but the thing that will make him be productive in organization. And that's a different thing. Even if you're the smartest, you can be either constructive or destructive in a, in a company environment. Mm. So if you want a high performance organization, you need to make sure that the people uh, are constructive, not destructive in that way. So those are softer things to gauge. Here is the way I would gauge it. Uh, every corporate person will tell you that in a corporate environment, it's not a single individual that makes success. Anybody believing that they are the ones responsible for the success uh, are probably uh, misguided and giving themselves a little too much credit. Right. Maybe a little narcissistic. A corporate is successful because of a full organization. And I would say a corporate is successful because it is comprised of different teams responsible for different tasks. And it's when the team does well is when the task out of that team gets to be better. And at large, that's when the output is, is, is of high quality. Mm. So I would look at, at the first question that I would ask, is this going to be a good team player or not? Mm. 
And, and how do I suspect whether somebody could be a good team player or not? I'll ask him about other projects he was working on. And indirectly, I'll ask him exactly what was his position, how different was it from the team, and how was he able to convince the team. And I'll get a sense whether he's a guy that doesn't like to work in a teamwork or is a guy that understands that he can make the team more productive. So mm. those are the kind of questions one can ask just to get a sense, will he be a good team player? The other one is, even if one wants to be a good team player, one's behavior may stand in the way of being a team player. Mm -hmm. And what is the cause of behaviors that, that puts one in a situation where they're not really productive team players? So if they are too stubborn, uh, if they're unwilling to be open-minded to listening to other people's opinion, if they're more dictatorial in nature, if they feel... The, the, if they need to save face every time somebody else comes up with a different point of view, uh, if they feel like they have to explain everything away because they were right, uh, all those are indications that the guy is just going to be a, a negative force in the team. And you mm -hmm. can get there just to role playing with him a little bit and ask him exactly what happened in that case or in, the, you know, in some of his previous work environment. So that's, that's one thing. If a person talks too much during the interview and he keeps using the word, I, I, I did this, I did that, I did this and I did that, uh, that is another sign. So those are the little signs. The next thing is whether the person is, talks to you in, in, in terms of negative way or positive ways. If the person is negative about anything, oh, I didn't like my boss, I didn't like my team, it wasn't very good, they, they weren't very smart. And uh, that's a clear red flag. It doesn't mean eliminating, but it's a clear red flag of somebody that's not a very good team player. Because if mm. you learn to be a good team player in the past, uh, you will coach it a little differently. You will say, well, you know, uh, not everybody had an agreement. I tried to change the mind, but obviously, you know, sometimes one is successful and sometimes one is not. So you get to see open-minded as opposed to closed-minded. And that's the kind of thing that I would look at during an interview to, to gauge that. Too many eyes, too many negative things about employees, the work environment. And the last thing is, if the interviewee, for whatever reason, says anything negative about his previous work performance, that's not a very good sign. I would rather hear negative things by saying, you know, I'm not sure that I liked it all that much. And I'm not sure it was the best environment there for me or for my other people. As opposed to, oh, it was a terrible environment. I just hated every minute of it. Mm. So those are the kind of the nuanced minor things that, that I would look at when I look at interviewing employees. Okay. All right. So I had cut you off because I wanted to hear some of these screening questions. So thank oh, you so okay, much. So, you, so big idea number one was um, screen for high performers. And then you were about to go into number two here uh, uh, in terms of setting up this culture for high performance. Right. So, so you need to train them. Uh, and, and to me, that is the most critical aspect of it. Uh, you can, uh, the, corp the company, and, and let me, let me uh, emphasize the following. Uh, we're talking about a company, but it really it boils down to a department and to the individual manager. So when right. I say company, I mean anyone at any level has some, uh, some ability to influence that. Uh, and, and I'm referring to all three of them when I talk about what needs to be influenced. 
so the first thing is, it, it's been my experience that although all organizations claim that they train the people, whether it's on the job training, whether it's your boss is trying to train you, uh, or, or they send you to classes or courses and the like, uh, they do almost the minimum possible. Right. They tell you it's very high priority, but in reality, it, it, it's the minimum possible. And, and I, don't, I don't say it in a negative way. Um, probably the biggest reason is because they just don't have time to waste on training somebody. So they would prefer they learn kind of on the job. I'll throw you in a pool and you learn how to swim. Otherwise, you'd kind of drown. Uh, and, and, and some of them will swim, but some of them will drown. I think it's a much better approach to take right up front and help train them. Hmm. Now, let me tie here. It's an interesting, this is an interesting insight. Most, what most people do, they, when they go into training, they, they train everybody. They make training available to everybody. Now, you, you, you asked earlier the question, how do you screen them out when you interview them? So you try to hire the people who have a greater potential. So I'm saying is, yeah, you'll hire people, but some of them you will hire properly and correctly, and some of them will be a mistake. It's just right. natural. Statistics will say that. Mm-hmm. So I'm suggesting the following. If indeed training people is too much waste for too many people, and it could be waste in terms of time, money, and, and, and backlog of work, then at least identify the people, the subset of people who you think could end up being high performers and focus your training resource and focus your energy on giving them more and extra beyond what you would have otherwise given everybody else. This mm-hmm. way you now accelerate the opportunity to train and teach and get the competence level of those individuals who you deem to, to have better potential. And you can do it at all levels. So if you do that, conceptually, what one will do will identify the people who the organization already believes are high performance at all levels, all the way from the beginning level, all the way throughout management, and then set up a different training plan and training for those individuals, which is above and beyond what they give everybody else. Mm. And and that to me is a very cost-effective and time-effective way to create and allow the higher performer individuals to accelerate their career, to expedite their career, to contribute more to the company. Fantastic. Thank you, David. Um, So I think this, this, uh, leads us very naturally into, you know, you had sent me, uh, so this is these first two things you shared. So we're screening for high performers and, and then really investing in training them. This is kind of the organizational level, right? Of what really needs to happen to have a high performance culture. And then you, you've sent me, um, six ideas that you think are really important for leaders to be prioritizing if they want to uh, create a high performance culture that's actually sustainable, right? Where people aren't going to burn out. So um, let's dive into some of these ideas. So uh, big idea number one, teach employees to become the best and they will thus love their work the most. Can you tell me more about that, please? Yes. And if you'll allow me a little bit of a digression, uh, there are three observations that I will make overall as to how does one create a culture 
that is sustainable. And the three observations are the following. The first one is what you just mentioned. Uh, the observation is the following. One loves most what one does best. Mm. And one does best what one loves most. Mm -hmm. That's the first one. The second one is going to be uh, the following. In business, it is not the quantity that counts, but rather the quality. And when we get to that, I will suggest to you that a lot of people confuse that in the corporations. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes That's taking definitely. the quality as opposed to the quantity takes a little courage. Right. Because it's not what the common wisdom suggests you do in certain right. circumstances. And the third one is the following observation. Financially driven employees seek compensation. But emotionally invested employees seek to contribute, mm. even with some self-sacrifice. Mm. So with those three observations, if, you, if one understands those three observations and implements them well, one will end up with a culture, high-performance culture, that will not create burnout, that will be therefore sustainable. So with those three perspectives, let's go to the first one, which you suggested, which is one loves most what one does best, and one does best what one loves most, which basically says, if you can get a person to be a top performer or to be the best, and he perceives himself as being the best, he will love it most. And as right. the saying says, if he loves it most, he'll work at it a lot and he'll be the best at it. Right. And, and that goes into the training aspect. The training aspect is make him the top performer, make him the best, and therefore he will love what he does. So that was the first thing. And we talked about the making him the best and making top performer previously. Right. So the second item is, so yeah, uh, let's we, yeah. So you're, so the big idea there for number one is, it, it's kind of uh, a more um, just an, an addition to the initial screening, right? So you've screened out for a top top performer. Um, you're training them to be a top performer, and it seems to me there's one other component, right? Which is generally trying to get somebody who's in the right fit for that position, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, if they're not if they're not the right fit for that position, then in absent a whole lot of training, they're probably not going to feel like they're the best and they're, and, and thus they never will be. Would you agree with that? Yes. But selecting the right people, uh, selecting the right people is a very important element. I assume that companies already go through the selection process regardless. So they already decide whether one gets promoted or somebody else gets promoted. Right. Whoever did get promoted, you know, how do you then allow him to become better? Got it. So I'm not trying mm -hmm. to solve the problem as to you have 10 employees, which one of them do you want to promote? Right. The organization is much better at doing it. But once you promoted one, good. How do you then prepare him for the next promotion? How do you prepare him to be a top performer? How do you prepare him to, to do well so that they continue? He can continue with this promotion. And okay. the interesting part is 
the truth of the matter is, if you train them at the beginning well, and if you address everything that needs to be addressed, and forgive me for the plug, but those are the kind of things that my book is talking about, <laughs> right. uh, you will be preparing them to do well throughout their career. Mm. Because you'll be addressing the real basic things that once they capture and understand, once they know how to dissect business situation well, and then they'll carry it regardless of their management position. If for whatever reason, they hit an obstacle because of innate ability, because somebody is just as, you know, thinks in one way it's appropriate for one environment or one, uh, one position that they had, but may not be appropriate for a higher level position, then that's great. The organization will sort through that themselves, but the preparation is there. Excellent. So the preparation is still there. The training is still there. Okay. All right. So then big idea number two is don't confuse quantity with quality. Can you tell me about more about that, please, David? And, and this becomes very important in terms of sustaining the, the culture that doesn't burn out people. Mm. So the previous one that we discussed actually talks about more of the preparation to get a high-performance organization. And if you do it that way and you to train them and you make them the best, it will also impact the fact that will not burn that quickly. Mm. Right? But right. this is the second element that really deals with the burnout. So if, if I look at my background, my career, what I have observed over the years, the, probably the, the greatest source of a burnout stems from three different components. One is extremely high pressured environment. And after a while, you just give into that pressure. Right. The other one is not the pressure itself, but rather the time commitment that it takes. You spend way too much time. After a while, you just burn out. You feel like your entire life is not used anymore. Right. And the third one clearly is a negative, is an environment that is a negative environment for you where you're just not happy. Mm. So those are the three things that will lead somebody to burn out. Either they're not happy with what they do, uh, the time commitment is massive and they're just unable to keep up with it, or the job has too many pressures, whether it's time pressure, whether it's decision pressure, whether it's consequences pressure, it's just after a while you just burn out for those things. So if you want to deal with burnout, you probably need to deal with all three of those. How do you keep employees happy? How do you make sure that they don't burn out because it takes way too much time? And how do you deal with, with the pressure itself? So let me start with the pressure because that's a little bit more difficult. The, the pressure, some work environments have pressure in them and, and not much can be done. But you can do a lot about the other two and it will go a long way then to make sure that people don't burn out. So let mm. me focus on the other two, which is a long answer to where you wanted me to come to at the end of it. Uh, but let's talk about with the time pressure, which is the worst thing that I've seen. Uh, I almost came down to burning out and I said, I've had it. It's mostly comes because you feel like you're doing too much work for no good reason. If you mm -hmm. boil it all down to most people, if they're a good performer, they're a competent performer, they're accomplished and they're ready to contribute. As I said, you know, I'm ready to contribute. I want things to, to go well. They burn out because they feel I'm wasting my time. 
All that I'm mm. doing is not doing any good. And the reason is mostly I'm doing things that don't help. They don't move the needle at all. They're just waste of time. And indeed, that's the case. From my experience, a lot of the time spent on the work is just wasteful time. It comes from what I call either political reasons on the part of the manager or the department or the vice president or the corporation, whatever it is, or bureaucratic reasons. And, and the common wisdom out there is that the more you do, the quicker, the better off you are as a manager, right? So there's, here's the pressure. The more you do, the quicker. So you put deadlines that, that are to some extent artificial. Uh, you ask for things that might or might not necessarily be all that greatly important. And I find that if one was able to differentiate between quality and quantity, if one had the courage, and this is now to the manager, if one had the courage to say, I don't want to do the, quality, the quantity, I want to focus on the quantity. What is real quantity? What is really necessary to get things done at the right time and what is not? If one was able to use that selection mode well, one would save tremendous amount of time of work for his underlings. Tremendous. Right. And it kind of reminds me of when I was a consultant, we, we, we used to work. 100, 120 hours a week, every week for years. I mean, it's just never ending. Talk about a high performance, high pressure environment. Right. Uh, and we, were we would never survive if, if we didn't focus on that quality comes first. And most top consultants would, 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 would end up having to do that because they're paid by time and they have to make sure you know, they don't waste time. But I remember I was introduced to the following adage, which is terrific and, and it kind of captures in a, in a simple language what I'm trying to explain about quality versus quantity. So it said the following, if you cannot dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So to me, all the quantity is because somebody's trying to baffle somebody or somebody feels that they need to do it because otherwise they'll be criticized. That's what I said earlier. It takes a little courage to argue on behalf of your employees, on behalf of your underlings, on behalf of your subordinates that, you know, I only need to do this. Why are we doing the other things? So why are we doing the other things within the same deadline? If you are able to, to convince or ever ask you into this kind of environment that you are right, you will save a lot of time. And if it permeates organization-wide, there's no question in my mind. You can save 80% of the time that people get burned out over uh, by being much more quality-oriented as opposed to quantitative-oriented. Fantastic. All right. So um, big idea number three is create a culture that gets employees emotionally invested in their work and their workplace. Right. Can you tell me more about that, please? Because I yeah, remember so, at the top, you were saying, you know, if somebody's emotionally invested, that's when they, they want to contribute and maybe even uh, with self-sacrifice. That's correct. So the first, obviously, it goes back to the recruiting. You can, kill it, you can tell during the recruiting whether a person wants a job because he wants a salary, and that's all he cares about. You know, I won't come, I want to work from eight to five and leave me alone. Right. All right. Or somebody that really comes to have a career and he wants to contribute and he's going to be a good, productive employee. So that's where the first screening happens. Assuming that you were successful. And my suspicion is that the people who didn't come in 
everyday attitude will be for one reason or another screened out over time anyways. Uh, but you're now at a point, the company or the, or the department or the managers at the point where he has employees that really want to contribute because they view it not just for the corporation, but for their own career that they need to contribute. So mm. they start with the idea that they want to contribute. So the question is, how do you make them emotionally involved in feeling that they're contributing something meaningful? And the first observation is what I just last ended up my sentence. To feel that somebody contributing, for a person to feel that one is contributing, it has to be something meaningful. Mm, right. So if you want to have somebody to feel that is contributing, you need to understand that it is meaningful too, because nobody will self-sacrifice for minor causes, but they will die if necessary for big causes. Right. So how do you get them to feel that they're contributing in, in a meaningful way? The first step in my mind is, is that quality versus quantity. Right. Because most of them have already, regardless of their manager, most of them already decided this doesn't make any sense. Why am I spending so much hard time on this? It, it, it's, it's meaningless. Right. So if you do that, you'll go a long way towards getting one naturally feeling that they're contributing. Mm. The second part is what proactively the manager can do or the company can do to give them a sense they're contributing. And that means basically credit. Give people credit, make sure that they understand that they do well. And when you present it, make sure you present it in a way that makes them feel that they have contributed in something meaningfully, whether it is to the team, whether it is to the department, whether it is to the company. But, but it has to be coached in the words, it's really meaningful contribution. All right, that's the first one. The second one is people tend to buy in and be more emotionally invested in something that they understand. If they understand the reasons, if they understand the why they're working hard, if mm. they understand why they had to stand, uh, you know, have deadlines and, and sacrifice some personal life for that, then they and accept that, then they are much more willing to buy into it. Mm. So the easiest thing to do is make sure that your subordinates are fully aware of what, why, and how. They understand the importance of what they're doing. They understand the reason as to why it's going to be condensed and pressured at this point. They understand why the deadline is set in. And then there's a buy-in, and then they can easily contribute. Without that understanding, they'll naturally resist it. Once somebody resists something, the buying doesn't happen. Mm. Okay, yeah. So that it sounds like uh, that was a nice transition right into big idea number four, which is make sure that you know, team members understand the importance and the need for tasks and deadlines assigned. Um, what would be your guidance for kind of a pragmatic way of executing on this? You know, so that um, team members consistently feel like they know exactly why the tasks delegated to them or assigned to them and the, and the deadlines associated with those tasks exist the way they do. Right. right. So the, the way I approach it, and this is the advice that, that I give people, and it's, sometimes it's very difficult. When you have a team working, I notice in many organizations and you see it in a government, governmental bureaucracy a lot, 
whatever we see on television, you can see it right away. I mean, the top guy is sitting at the front and the back guy are behind and there is an order to the hierarchy within the organization and within the team. I think that kind of a thing is a psychological, very uh, uh, negative relative to feeling that you're doing something of importance here. Mm. So my philosophy is when you are on the team, everybody gets to feel as if they're the boss. Everybody gets to contribute. They shouldn't be aware of ranks when they have a conversation and discussion. Mm. And, and sometimes when you're the boss and you're a higher level person or your supervisor, it, it, it's difficult for you to take it because, you know, you, you, you feel empowered by doing it. So my first advice is when you sit at the team, make sure everybody in the team feels they can contribute and, 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 and to forget all the ranking, basically. Because I right. can tell you, uh, it, I, it, it, statistically, I'm just as likely to get a good idea from, from, from somebody who is very experienced or who is my boss around the team than for somebody who just joined the team. Right. You never know when a good, when a good idea is going to come from. And if, and if the, the junior guy feels uncomfortable speaking because he's going to contradict his boss, I, that's exactly where you kill the, the, <laughs> right. the quality versus the quantity, right? Right. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, don't allow in a team environment uh, interpersonal skills, which can contribute to some people not wanting to say something. Uh, mm. It's because of the boss or because of body language or somebody is using negative language. So people need to feel that there is no punishment whatsoever out of a team conversation. That when we get into a team environment, when we get into a discussion, when we get into solving a problem, your contribution is equal to anybody else's and we will look at everything the same way. So there's no uh, subsequently coming and, and, and criticizing anything. Credit, you can give as much as you want. That, that's fine, but, but not, <laughs> right. not, not criticizing anybody. Uh, so those would be, in my mind, the most important aspect, okay? Uh, that everybody feels that they're important. They're equal to everybody else. Mm. The, and that there's that not not a fear of uh, reprisal for yeah because contradicting most of the, time, the hierarchy yeah, yeah that's correct because I I got to tell you most of the time a lot of the quality wasn't achieved and the quantity took over because the manager or the boss or the superior person on the team stated something that he thought this is the right way to do it and this is what we want and a junior guy probably had a much better idea that might even <laughs> convince the manager that, right. you know, there's a better quality and a simpler way, but he is reluctant to do that because the, the body language around the, the, the team table uh, was, uh, you know, you're not equal. So just keep it to yourself. I've had it at all levels from the time I was an entry level position in a company all the way when I was a manager Every time my boss spoke, I was told, just, just, just don't, don't contradict him. Don't ignore. I mean, exactly the team dynamics that I'm recommending against. <laughs> right. So I'm willing to accept that if there are outsiders in the room, you may want to be careful. But if it's all insiders, please, if you want a good, productive team environment, tell everybody that as far as anybody's concerned, they're equal. 
There are no repercussions. Speak your mind. Always speak your mind. Disagree, even if it is with the president of the company. Love it. So a moment ago, David, you mentioned that not only is it okay to share credit often, but you should. And in fact, that that's big idea number five. So make sure you spread credit around so employees feel a sense of reward and recognition. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about how you would uh, guide guide leaders to execute on that idea? Right. So let me, t- to explain what, what how to best implement it, let me explain why people don't do what I would recommend they should do. So everybody wants to come across to their superiors as having contributed the most or having contributed in the best way or being the top performer. Because that's how they perceive their own career progression, individual career progression as being important. So they're reluctant to give credit to other people, particularly if it's not in their mind well-deserved. And also they are reluctant not to tell you that, oh, I did 80% of this work or it was my idea or it was my thing. I'm talking about now in front of superiors, in front of the team, in front of other people, because they feel that they need that to highlight that they are the top performance because that will help the acceleration of their career. Right. So here is an insightful observation. Give credit to everybody. You can be as modest as you want about your own credit. I guarantee you, no matter how modest you are, no matter how much credit you'll give to other people, your superiors and their superiors will know exactly who the credit belongs to. Mm. We tend to underestimate how individuals, and here I'm talking about anybody, all ages, Uh, all geographical areas, all background, all experiences, how insightful people tend to be. Mm. And it is particularly true to higher level managers. Managers have learned to become very insightful. That's probably one of the, or more insightful than the average person. That's probably one of the reasons they got promoted through their ability to be a little bit more insightful. So I'm suggesting while, while as one would think that if they don't grab the credit, they will not get the credit. I'm suggesting to you, even if you say I don't deserve any credit, people will give you the exact credit you do deserve because they will observe it, they will know it, they, will, they would have understood that. Now, there is an added benefit to that, interestingly, if you do it that way. If you do it that way, you'll get the added benefit that your superiors will, ta- will say, oh, he's a terrific team player. Right. And, and let me suggest the following. Being a good team player is critically important to advancing your career over time. Mm. So that's how you should do and behave in terms of giving credit. And I'll bring a famous adage here that President Kennedy once said. And my my suggestion to you is what I'm recommending exactly the opposite. What I just recommended is exactly opposite of what President Kennedy observed. And what President Kennedy observed was... Success has many fathers, failures are orphans. So if you're a manager, make sure to create many fathers, give credit to everybody, but on the opposite things, take the blame. Shield your team 
don't blame the team for some things that happen because mm. once you blame them, you have lost the connection between them contributing and being emotionally involved with your success and the department's success. Mm. So once you shield them, don't worry about making offense negative. And, and here's another insightful thing. When you take blame in one's mind, you just hurt your career. For many, many years, observing many people who have failed and have, and have taken the blame, I can tell you fault and problems and things not going well are always forgiven. Right. And, 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 but if you try to be defensive or if you try to blame somebody else, people most of the time will understand that and it will stand in the way of your own career. Mm. So I'm suggesting it's going to be good for your career, but it's going to even be better for your subordinate when they feel that, that you are protecting them, you're behind them, you're, you're, you're protecting the back, as they say. Right. All right. I love it. Okay. So um, one more idea here. The big idea number six is increase the sense of belonging. Right. Can you tell me a little bit more about why this is important and how, how we do this well, David? Right. So, so we talked about a couple of things about the burnout situation. Make right. sure that people are competent, make sure that they do the best, make sure that they contribute the most, make sure that you have quality of equality to alleviate the time pressure and all those kind of things. This is another dimension to it. All right. And then this is the last dimension is if I am happy, then I'm much more likely not to burn out. And, and happy meaning I'm just happy to be in that environment. Right. So it's not happy about my job. It's not happy that I'm a top performer, but just happy to go to work, happy to be in that environment. Right. So how do you keep an employee happy besides those other things that we covered so far? And to me, you make somebody feel that he belongs in that organization, that that organization and that workplace is, is a place where he should feel very comfortable. It's like his best friends are there. His home is there. It's like he's going back to home. It's not like he feels, right. oh, my gosh, I'm going to work. No, I'm going to visit our friends. I got some very great friends there. I have fun time at work and a whole bunch of things. And you can create that environment through social interactions. You can mm -hmm. create that environment through events whereby one feels that they socially belong there, that they have a social connection with the company and with employees with, within the team, within the department, within the company. And there are a thousand ways of doing that. And any way is good. And the more, the better in this kind of an environment. I would suggest just one thing. Please don't forget the spouses. Right. So make sure that when you think about how do I create an environment in my corporation that socially does that well, keep in mind that sometimes 50% or maybe even higher, maybe 90% of the dissatisfaction of the employee may very well be <laughs> the complaints that he hears at home. So right. you want the spouse to also feel that she belongs. I mean, she socially belongs in that environment. So here is the insight that I will give you. What I just said, probably everybody will nod their heads and says, yes, yeah, sure, and we are doing it. And I'm suggesting, yeah, most of them are doing it. They tour a party in Christmas. They do, they do the minimum. I'm suggesting elevate it to something that becomes a top priority. Think about it as a top priority item. Think about it 
doing more than otherwise you already are used to doing. What mm. else can you do to get families together, to get employees together, to get spouses together? And, and some of it could be more lengthy. Some of it could be less lengthy. It could even be as simple as, you know what, I'm going to randomly assign a scholarship to, to employees as opposed to co corporations give millions and millions and millions of dollars to, to, to well-deserved uh, uh, benefits out there, to not-for-profit organization. Great. Why don't you take a part of it and, 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 and do a not-for-profit for your employees? <laughs> right. All right? And, and there is a lot of things. It's just one idea in a million ways. So I'm saying is once somebody says, I want to make it a top priority in my mind, They'll come up with a program that makes sense and gives it the kind of priority it deserves. And if it's done well, you'll create an environment where employees feel a sense of belonging. I know, really, I like this place. It's my place. I, I recognize this place and, 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 and I can identify with this place. And my best friend is there. And clearly, if my best friend is there and I'm about to burn out and my best friend gives me good advice, I mean, there is there is... I, I, you know, there's an editor that just says that the problem of many is half a consolation. Well, great. <laughs> the problem of many is half a consolation. Don't isolate somebody uh, in, in this kind of a problem because he'll burn out. Mm. Wow, David, this has been this has been fantastic and very, very helpful for me personally. I, I'm very confident this is uh, has been very helpful for the listener. So I, I want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me. I'm here on Business Leadership Today. Thanks, David. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. For you, my friend, the listener um, who would like to learn more about David, you can find him at davidkronfeld.com. It's F-E-L-D at the end. Uh, and we'll also have links to his website um, and his book, Remarkable, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, where he goes a lot deeper into the topics you, you heard about today. Uh, we'll have links to that as well as the show notes, uh, some, an overview of what we talked about today at businessleadershiptoday.com. And so the next time uh, that we have a chance to hopefully help you in some way, I uh, wish you great success in building a world-class organization that makes a positive impact on the lives of your team members and on the global community. And one last note here before we sign off, I, I want to send a thank you to Caleb West, who produces this podcast, does all the editing, and I think does a great job making it sound fantastic. So until the next time, uh, take care.